My God, it's full of stars. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this is our 2001 A Space Odyssey episode. This is part one of a two-part episode. We are recording it on Saturday, January 15th, 2022, and it is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, January 22nd. We have two special guests for this episode. This is the first time we are having two guests in one episode, both our returning guests. Mark Asquith was our guest for season one, episode four, that looked at the Prisoner series. Robert J. Sawyer was our first guest ever for our season one, episode two, look at the 1968 Planet of the Apes film. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. I'm pushing the spoiler alert button now. Plug your ears. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. We are recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, Robert J. Sawyer is my brother-in-law. I have known him for nearly 45 years, and Rob was my best man when I was married in 2021. I have known Mark Asquith through Rob for many decades. Troy is also friends with Rob and Mark. Let's introduce our special guests. Mark Asquith is a writer and television producer. He has covered the science fiction genre for over 30 years. Mark is the creator of the award-winning Prisoners of Gravity, and he is one of the founding producers of Space, Canada's national science fiction and fantasy channel. He has also produced dozens of half-hour television movie specials featuring interviews with stars like Tom Hanks, Christian Bale, and Sigourney Weaver. As well, he has interviewed dozens of scientists and astronauts, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, Buzz Aldrin, and Chris Hatfield. Neil Gaiman called him the secret master of science fiction, so I guess that's no longer a secret. Robert J. Sawyer is one of only eight writers in history and the only Canadian to win all three of the world's top awards for best science fiction novel of the year, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. The ABC TV series Flash Forward was based on his novel of the same name. His latest novel is The Oppenheimer Alternative. A member of both the Order of Canada and the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame, he lives in Mississauga, Ontario. Welcome, Mark and Rob. Glad to see you guys. Delighted to be here. You know, uh, it's really a great thing that we're doing this via Zoom, um, because I think if we did it all together, we would be sort of like contravening some rules, like the royal family flying together. So <laughs> I'm glad that we've, we're, we're all safe this way. Um, Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre, to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think Roger Ebert, in a review he published on March 27th, 1997, may have said it best when he said, The genius is not in how much Stanley Kubrick does in 2001 A Space Odyssey, but in how little. This is the work of an artist so sublimely confident that he doesn't include a single shot simply to keep our attention. He reduces each scene to its essence and leaves it on screen long enough for us to contemplate it, to inhabit it in our imaginations. Alone among science fiction movies, 2001 is not concerned with thrilling us, but with inspiring our awe. When Mark and Rob were guests, we did ask them what their all-time faves were, but we added more categories through the year. So we'll review their answers and ask them the ones that they were not asked before. If they wish to provide a bit of a story behind some of their answers, they're invited to do so. And what was neat is the first thing we asked was your favorite genre movie, and guess what both picked? 2001, A Space Odyssey. Shocking. (laughs) Shocking that there's gambling going on here. (laughs) Um, A genre TV show, and Mark picked The Prisoner, and Rob picked Star Trek, the original series. Uh, For a genre TV episode, this we asked later. We did ask 
uh, Mark, when he was our, our guest for the fourth episode, what his favorite genre TV episode, we made it clear, it doesn't have to come from your favorite genre TV show. And he picked Humbug from the X-Files, which was a season two, episode 20, original air date around March 31st, 1995. We didn't ask Rob that. Do you have a favorite genre TV episode? I do. It's the last kamikaze from The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, wonderful episode. First time I ever saw any Americans expressing regret over the bombing of Japan in World War II. And to have a national hero, an astronaut, Steve Austin, uh, express that regret changed my whole view of, uh, of the atomic circumstance and led to directly 40 years later to my novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative. Um, thanks, Rob. Now, genre novel, um, Mark picked Neuromancer and Rob picked Gateway uh, when it came to the shorter work. Uh, and sometimes people do have more than one because it's hard to pick between them, even though sometimes it's a first choice. Mark, I think, has a first choice, picked Flowers for Algernon, and the second, the word for World is Forest, and Rob picked Tableau by James White. Uh, genre author, Mark had Ursula K. Le Guin and Rob. Arthur Very C. appropriately Clark. for right now, Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> There you go. Uh, for a genre theme or concept, Mark had portal stories, the idea of going into another world like Narnia or Wizard of Oz. And Rob had, what does it mean to be human? Now, this is where we diverge again, because we added this category, which was theater production or musical. And in some cases, when we say theater production or musical, you can also do and you can pick both. So what Mark did was he picked both. He did pick a theater production. And this is the same one that I have as my favorite, which was the Frankenstein 2011. Royal National Theatre one with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller where they switched roles every night and the musical he picked was Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Now, Rob, you don't have to pick both, but it's up to you. Oh, you I have, have one, a absolutely. Production, but- a theatrical production, a stage play. Its title was simply Science Fiction and it was by the great Toronto playwright and filmmaker David Whittacombe. Now, David very pa- sadly passed away a couple of years ago, much, much too young. He was a younger man than me and uh, very sorry to see him go. But I was delighted that I championed the play when I saw it. And it went on to win the Aurora Award, Canada's um, top science fiction and fantasy award in the other category the year that it was produced. And do you have a uh, musical? I do not. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> Let's go on. Comic book series. Um, this hey, before one, we move we asked, on, did you yeah, know, I have to ask this of Rob, I have to ask this. Did you know there was a Star Trek musical? A Star Trek musical? I did not know that. Yes. Written by Gar and Judy Reeve Stevens. Oh, my God. And uh, never actually ended up getting uh, mounted uh, because the amount of, I guess it would have cost a fortune to do it. But I, I, always, I just thought, oh, my God. Somebody actually explored that as a musical. So I just throw that out there. Did they sing the theme? Beyond the Rim of the Star. I won't do any further. <laughs> any idea what <laughs> any idea what it covered, Mark? Was it basically the original series? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. And I, I just remember that we Gar, Judy, and I talked about the, the Klingons, of course, were the core to the musical because, of course, of all the characters in Star Trek. They are the ones that would be the most emotive and they would have the best songs. You yeah. know, they would have the, the real rousing numbers. So. The core of the musical. Oh. little John <laughs> Colicos pun there. Yeah, I, I picked up on that. That's brilliant. Um, when we had asked about comic book series, we, we framed it as comic book series or graphic novel. And what happened, Mark, is that you answered the graphic novel side of V for Vendetta by Alan Moore and illustrated by David Lloyd. If you want to, if you do actually have a comic book series that you want to add, that's up to you. There are obviously <laughs> thousands. I guess, I guess I'd probably say Daredevil by Frank Miller or um, Batman by Frank Miller. Something by Frank Miller. <laughs> Ronan. <laughs> and Rob, do you have either one or both for when it comes to either graphic novel or comic book series? Comic book series, yeah. Uh, Marvel and did a marvelous, ha ha ha, large format, black and white, Planet of the Apes comic book series, premiering around about, I think, 1974, with just spectacular artwork 
really in-depth articles about the film. So I recommend those highly. The black, not the color ones they did later, but the black and white large format Marvel uh, Planet of the Apes comics. Um, I, I have to point out that a lot of the artwork done in that was by a guy called Mike Plug. Mike Plug. I was going to mention him, and then I thought, no, I'm not going to. But Fabulous. yeah, Mike Plug, who later goes Fabulous. on and has a career in film and television, who, who did storyboards for, you know, The Thing. He did storyboards for Dream Child. A visual genius. Yeah, absolutely. And, what, and the thing that I really loved about that run was the uh, sort of the B stories that were not the adaptations yes. of the screenplays, but the original stuff. Jason and, and Alexander series yeah. they had. And there was there. a time, I mean, obviously there was a time travel element to Planet of the Apes, but there was one where it was, it was basically like uh, the time machine. I, I recall vaguely because this is the run I don't have now and I want to find. But this well, guy- apparently Mark gave them to Jonathan Lear here in Toronto. <laughs> so we can just go get them from Jonathan Lear. Well, if, if I make a time machine, I can just go back and get them from Mark before he gives them to Jonathan. Yes. So I'll get on that. Apparently, Jonathan Lear is the only Planet of the Apes fan (laughs) Mark knows. (laughs) I think we talked about that just before we started recording, but um, we did. But I think (laughs) people will pick up. Yeah, we have a very bright audience here. Yeah, and it and it still hurts. Well, see, Robert, (laughs) there probably was, according to Doctor Hasslein, a a different timeline where Mark did give them to you. So I would. Oh, that's true. All right. All right. Yeah, we've also got the Mandela effect. Now, when it comes to genre poem, um, Mark had picked Agrippa, which was by William Gibson. And I don't know if, Rob, if you had a genre poem. I certainly do. Being your brother-in-law, being a suck-up, being that I'm on your show, it is, and being that the poem is dedicated to me and first appeared in Analog Magazine, it is Early Man by David Livingston Clink, inspired by the four reproductions of ancient hominid and australopithecine skulls that I have in my living room. Early man, David Clink, Analog Magazine. Okay, um, I think there's a, the fix is in here, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, definitely that works. Now, uh, Troy will ask these. So these ones are what we call the a la carte things, where you can, if you want to, you can just answer none of them. You can answer one. You can answer all of them. But go and take it away, Troy. All right, gentlemen. So if you would like to add any of these for your uh, dining and dancing pleasure, we have uh, a genre podcast. Do you have one that you'd like to choose? Well, I'm first on the list, so shall I pick or do you want to pick? Go ahead, Mark. Go ahead, Mark. My favorite uh, genre podcast is Comics Kayfabe, where they look at um, all kinds of wonderful comics. They occasionally interview people. Very, very, very smart. And that's Kayfabe with a K. Continuing my suck-up theme, it's two old farts talk about sci-fi. Oh, thank you. You're Perhaps. the best, Rob. I You're am. The best. I'm the best man, apparently, <laughs> at your wedding. Yeah, you definitely deserve all the poda love that we can give you. So when it comes <laughs> to audiobook, what do we got? I, I'm going to go with the audible uh, adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which I think is really great. It's, it's lovely. And is that Gaiman who's reading them? Um, he's the narrator, but there's a lot of really terrific. Uh, it, they're not really an audio book, which is kind of a weird thing to say. It, and it's all, why I call it the audible version, because he's the narrator, but there's about, a, you know, a dozen or so actors who get involved. Okay. It's really terrific. Have you heard them, Rob? I have not. No, I will um, Highly use an it. audible credit on it. And Rob, do you have an audible? Yeah, I do. And this is a very serious uh, suggestion. Um, The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the movie version, which I didn't think was very good at all. Uh, The book is an absolutely first-rate piece of science fiction that was published as mainstream. And uh, in the audiobook version, they have two separate narrators, one for the time traveler, uh, uh, Henry de Tamble, and one for his wife. Uh, and uh, they really play off each other well. The voices are terrific. And I just thoroughly enjoyed listening to that. The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Neffenegger. Excellent. So we're moving on to genre documentary or mockumentary. Do, uh, Mark, do you have a, a favorite? Yeah. Our- 
Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of um, a documentary that probably you've all seen called Magnificent Desolation, which is a look at the American space program. And I really, I really love that. It's really terrific. And it's got um, soundtrack by Brian Eno. Oh, excellent. What year was that produced? Or roughly? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. It's been, been around for a while, though? been around for a while i i actually got to see the premiere sitting beside uh, james cameron which is a totally surreal moment and they had a bunch of nasa people there uh, at the premiere which was really wild as well and that was in la and then i went to new york and that's where i got to um, see it with uh, buzz aldrin and a bunch wow. of other astronauts at the smithsonian which was so Partly my love of this documentary is colored by the fact that I got to interview most of the people in the film. How about you, Rob? It's airing right now, the series, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, hosted by Gates McFadden. I've been blown away. I'm a huge Star Trek geek, especially old series, but the whole franchise. And I'm learning things that I'd never learned before. And just, it's really put together with panache and wit. The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, airing in Canada on uh, CTV right after episodes of Star Trek Discovery and uh, airing in the United States, I believe, on History Channel. So I guess that's also available on demand then. Could be. Could be. I I have not made that demand. Okay. Sounds great. I'm going to look for both of those. We'll move on to genre nonfiction book or essay. Mark, anything? Uh, I don't know if this qualifies, but I'm a really big fan of uh, the collected scripts for From Hell by Alan Moore. And uh, it's not really, well, it's, I don't know how you would, I'm, I'm going to call it genre nonfiction, but it's also an essay. It's also a revealing look at how you actually construct a comic book script by one of the great comic book writers. And it, yeah, it's one of those things that I've just read and read and read again and again and again. And it, From Hell, of course, is the story of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I think that definitely applies. How about you, Rob? When I joined the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America way back in 1984, I think it was, they sent me the original edition of the SFWA handbook. And I owe all of the success of the business aspects of my career to one essay in that book by Frederick Pohl called The Science Fiction Professional. It taught me everything I know about about promotion, about keeping track of your submissions, about how to comport yourself in this industry. The whole handbook was great. Uh, It's been redone several times with new contributions. Sadly, the poll is not included anymore in the current copies, but it was absolutely, I think, that uh, edition from the 1980s was the best they ever had. What was the name of the um, essay again? The Science Fiction Professional. Okay, we're moving on to genre filk, getting a little musical here. Um, I guess, I think when we did this, David, uh, Yoda, was it Yoda by Weird Al was sort of came to mind and probably the, one of the first examples I had ever heard of Filk before I knew there was such a thing as Filk. Uh, Mark, do you have uh, something that I'm sorry, I, I have none. No, Rob? Uh, I am not a big Filker, but Tom Smith is a terrific Filk artist, and he's been guest of honor, he and I, at the same convention, by pure coincidence, many a time. I enjoy everything that Tom Smith does. Now, I know, I guess this is just parody in general, but I thought you might have gone with uh, Rock Me Dr. Zayas. Well, that, you know, the thing is, yeah, I guess it is, that does qualify as Filk, doesn't it? Because it's science fictional lyrics, to an established song. I was actually right. thinking of <clears throat> me, uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh, oh, I love yeah. Rachel yeah, Blue, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I didn't uh, know but, that that would count. But if but that that's counts, an original I'm thinking the Rachel Blue. So I don't know if it counts because it's an original tune. Well, I think not. we should allow it because it's, but, it's, it's a piece of music inspired by something science from genre. Fiction. And so, I certainly, I, I had the great pleasure of meeting Rachel when she was up for the Hugo Award for that particular thing. Just an absolutely charming performer and actor, and uh, uh, absolutely. Did she win? She, uh, no, she did. Okay, um, I made sure to include that on our the outro of our um, something wicked. Oh, very good. Uh, 
episode. I just, it felt like it, it had to somehow, you know, be given its due. So, um, and then we have the uh, wonderfully absurd genre best fish. There's a lot to choose from here, believe it or not, but I'm going to go with the babble fish from Douglas Noel Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm-hmm. And Rob? Stingray. Stingray. Uh, yeah. Anything can happen in the next half hour. On to 2001, The Space Odyssey. Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is, just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Troy? I'm tired of always having to do these summaries. I don't know what you're talking about, Troy. I know that you and Mark and Rob were planning to write your own summary, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Troy? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in muting the Zoom session, I could see your lips move. Troy, I won't argue with you anymore. Read the damn summary. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Stanley Kubrick was born in New York City in 1928. He made his way into the visual arts first as a photographer, finding work with Look magazine while still a teenager. His photojournalism led to documentary film work and then independent feature films. In 1957, Kubrick managed to attract Kirk Douglas to the anti-war film he was developing, Paths of Glory. The film garnered critical acclaim while being banned in France for its depiction of the French military. His work with Douglas resulted in the director taking over the gladiatorial epic Spartacus. Following the success of that film, Kubrick directed Lolita and Dr. Strangelove. Both films were critically and commercially well-received, while at the same time generating controversy. Expectation was high for Kubrick's follow-up to Dr. Strangelove. It had become Kubrick's practice to adapt existing written works, and it would continue to be his norm for the remainder of his career. He had an itch to begin work on a science fiction film, and he knew the author he wanted to work with. At that point, Arthur C. Clarke was one of the most famous and well-regarded living science fiction writers, along with Heinlein, Asimov, and Bradbury. In 1964, Kubrick contacted the author and expressed his desire to work with Clarke on what might become quote, the first really good science fiction movie, end of quote. Clark wound up moving into the Chelsea Hotel in New York so that he and Kubrick could immerse themselves in the work ahead. It is estimated that the men spent the next two years working 24 hours a week on the story for their film. Initially, the germ of the outline was to be Clark's 1948 story, The Sentinel. Kubrick eventually optioned it and a handful of other short stories by Clark to work into their script which had the working title of Journey Beyond the Stars. As Clark had never written in screenplay format, he instead created a prose version of what was essentially a detailed treatment. The two men brainstormed for months, combining elements of Nietzsche, Joseph Campbell, and Homer's The Odyssey. A protagonist named Bowman would represent Odysseus. The underlying theme was to illustrate humans as a transitional species, Like the experience of many others who would become involved with the project, 2001 was a grueling test of endurance for Arthur C. Clarke. The author felt it was essential to include voiceover narration to link the film's vague, often wordless segments. Canadian actor Keir DeLay was cast in the lead role of astronaut Dave Bowman, while Gary Lockwood would play Dr. Frank Poole. The film would eventually be divided into four distinct segments, The Dawn of Man, Mission to the Moon, Mission to Jupiter, and Rebirth or Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Principal photography began in England at the end of 1965. Incredibly detailed sets were constructed with input from NASA and leading space age contractors. Yet the script was still nowhere near finalized. Filming of actors continued until September of 1966 with the Dawn of Man 8 segment. The film's opening being the last to involve actors. 
Kubrick then pivoted to special effects photography, and finally, editing. Kubrick decided to do away with Clark's scripted voiceover narration. Kubrick had been working with classical music, which he claimed was placeholder music that he would eventually replace. Yet in the end, he told MGM he wanted to stick with his musical choices. MGM insisted he try an original score. Composer Alex North, who Kubrick had worked with on Spartacus, was brought in to create the original music for 2001. The composer ended up having a physical and nervous collapse, and Kubrick got his wish of including the classical score he wanted. Days before the film's opening, Kubrick was still editing his film. Finally, the movie's world premiere came on April 2nd, 1968, in Washington, followed by a New York screening the next night. The original cut of 2001 A Space Odyssey ran 160 minutes long. Other films like Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia, and even Kubrick's Spartacus were much longer. But when you consider that the film only contains 40 minutes of dialogue, it must have been a long slog for unsuspecting audiences. During the intermission, 241 patrons walked out of the film, including the film's co-writer, Arthur C. Clarke. The New York press eviscerated 2001. Within a week, Kubrick had shortened the film to 142 minutes. Some reviewers changed their minds with subsequent viewings, but more importantly, the film found its audience, predominantly among young college-aged filmgoers. 2001 gained momentum at the box office. The film that was made for $10.5 million has since earned $146 million worldwide. Arthur C. Clarke's novel, based on the film, based on the screenplay, based on the treatment, based on his short stories, became a bestseller when released in June of 1968. But whereas Kubrick received 50% of the book's royalties, Clarke received none of the film's royalties. 2001 was the perfect distillation of its time. A film set in the cosmos while the space race was still ongoing, with man yet to step foot on the moon. A film that featured a trippy light show climax that appealed to an acid-dropping counterculture. When asked if he had seen 2001, John Lennon said, I see it once a week. 2001 was, in fact, the perfect film at the perfect time. At the 1969 Academy Awards, 2001 A Space Odyssey was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, Best Art Direction, and Best Visual Effects. Kubrick was given the award for Best Visual Effects, much to to the chagrin of Douglas Trumbull, who had developed many of the visual effects. The film that Pauline Kael called the biggest amateur movie of them all is now regularly cited, not just as the first really good science fiction film, as Kubrick had hoped, but as one of the best films of all time, regardless of genre. Virtually all of the classic science fiction films have followed, from Star Wars to Close Encounters to Alien, owe a debt to Kubrick's film. There you have it, David. First experience of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mark and Rob, please tell us how you were first introduced to the film. That's a complicated question in a way because I first found out about it. Remember, this is pre-internet, but uh, I was getting British magazines and I became completely fascinated by the behind the scenes photographs about this new film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And uh, I asked for it as my birthday present. I was turning 12. The movie opened early April. My birthday is April the 6th. And I on April the 12th, I got to go and see 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it was a really big deal for me because my parents, I would generally go to movies with my dad because it was very difficult for my parents to both go out at the same time. So this was a really big treat for me. I got to go with my mom and dad. We watched the film, and at the end of the film, my dad just turned to me, and he was a very smart, literate, educated man, and he turned to me and he said, please explain to me, you know, what happened. And that was a very big deal for me. I was 12, and here was my dad asking me what was going on. But he knew that I'd been obsessed by this film for about a year, and I'd read all kinds of stuff about it, and I'd read the short story. But I couldn't, I just, I just remember kind of saying, Dad, I don't know. (laughs) But that. So the film for me, just from that aspect, 
uh, is something, you know, to have an obsession about a film before it even opens it, I guess is common now. But back then wasn't. And uh, the fact that I got to see it with my parents at the theater on Beechwood, I think it was called the Linden at that time, was like a really, really, really big deal emotionally and psychologically. And then the film itself, I, I, you know, I didn't see it again for probably another five or six years. And I, it just, those images stayed in my head and grew and grew and grew. And um, so that was a huge moment in my education, I would have to say. It had a huge impact on me when I first saw it. The film came out April 3rd, 1968. On April 29th, 1968, I turned eight years old. I don't know if I saw it in its first three weeks when I was seven or saw it after that when I was eight. But my dad took me to the film. Remember, this was a G-rated film. Uh, so there was no reason not to take a kid to it, except for the potential that it was a very long film. Uh, my dad took me to the Glendale Theater in Toronto, where the 2001 had its longest first-run engagement in history. It ran there at the Glendale in Toronto in Cinerama, 70 millimeter, for two years, four months, and five days in continuous first release. But the first time I saw it, I'm sitting next to my dad. And let's say that I was eight years old at that time. My dad was 35 years older than me. 2001 from 1968. You could do the math easily enough. I would be 41 in 19, in 2001, and my dad would be 43. Uh, it was, was already 43 sitting next to me. In other words, there was a promissory note that even as an eight-year-old, I could comprehend that by the time I'm younger than dad is now, this is what the world is going to be like. Now, it didn't turn out to be that way, but that, I think if the film had had its original title, Journey Beyond the Stars, as Troy had alluded to in the, uh, in the synopsis, uh, I think it wouldn't have had the same impact, but that magical year, and you don't even know what year, what part of the film refers to that year. Is it the part on the moon or 18 months later when they go to Jupiter? They both can't be 2001. So who the heck knows? But that, captivated me. My dad was an intellectual. He was a professor at the University of Toronto. And of course, this was all the buzz on the U of T campus as it was every other campus, which is why he wanted to see it. He loved the classical music score, bought the LP, which I still have, and played it all the time. The Blue Danube, Zuspake, Zarathustra, and so forth. Beautiful music. He loved the music. I loved the science fiction. It captivated me. It made me what I became professionally a science fiction writer. Yeah, one thing, uh, Rob, I don't know if you want to relate it. We're, we're starting to run out of time, strangely enough, but there was that story about us seeing it because at the Ontario Science Center, they're yes. having these Friday night screen. I don't know if you want to tell the story briefly Absolutely. about what happened. Gerald Prattley, the head of the Ontario Film Institute, used to run a, a film series at the Ontario Science Center, which had the best film theater in Toronto. Beautifully, deeply uh, banked seats, wonderfully comfortable, giant screen. They could do large format films there. And they did a science fiction series every Friday of the month uh, in 75, 76, 77. I think they went all the way to 79 with that series. But the first Friday of each month was reserved for 2001, A Space Odyssey. And you and I and the other members of NASFA, our high school science fiction club, uh, went to see those screenings. Every month I would go. So I've seen the film more than 25 times on the big screen. Most recently during the uh, 50th anniversary, uh, when it was at Citisphere in Toronto and at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. But most of my big screen screenings were at the Ontario Science Centre once a month. And I would go... I'm not a religious man, but religiously to see that epic film. Did it have a screening in the 80s at, um, at Cinesphere? Yes. And yeah. I went. I absolutely went. Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering because I didn't know if I had a false memory of that or not. I, I remember I've only seen a handful of films and I thought at, at the Cinesphere and I thought that 2001 
might have been there, but then I thought maybe it, I was wrong and it was the um, Science Center instead. But so it was definitely at the Sinosphere. It was also at Sinosphere for sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. And good. I was there. We were yeah. in the same room then. <laughs> yeah. Again, there's also this note about yes. the screen, what happened with the screen, if you remember that. Wrong. Yes, I vividly remember it because they had an actual print. This wasn't digital projection. And the film is baffling enough as it is. But the only exposition in the film that actually tells you what's going on is when Dave cuts off Hal's intelligence in Hal's brain room. And that triggers the playback of Haywood Floyd's tape. Good day, gentlemen. This is a pre-recorded briefing made prior to your departure, at which, for security reasons of the highest importance, was made on board, known on board only to your HAL 9000 computer. And he explains why they're going, what the monolith had done, why Jupiter was the target, that it was the first evidence of extraterrestrial life, blah, blah, blah. Just as Haywood Floyd came up, the film burned on the screen. You could see it burning away. And so Prattley or whoever's up in the projection booth is having a heart attack. And they eventually get it running again after that expository sequence. This was the first time my mother-in-law, your mother, David, uh, the w- late, dear, departed, much beloved uh, Blanche Catherine Merka Clink, uh, <laughs> saw the film. Imagine how baffling it was when you first saw it. And then take out the only explanation in the film and really try to imagine how baffling that movie is. Especially if you think the melting of the screen is part of the part actual of the film. film. That's right. Right. Which I think they did in, in uh, what's up, uh, what's new Tyler? What's it? Tiger Lily? What's new Tiger Lily? Or is yes, it what's and up it was Tiger the Lily? originally intended ending for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. too. Oh, but I was saying to David, when he told me that story, I shrieked in much the same way I did when I heard that Mark had got rid of his Planet of the Apes magazine. To Jonathan Lear. But, but to Jonathan Lear. But I, I just, it, it, it blows my mind to think that the, a 70 millimeter print of 2001, you're watching it like melt before your eyes, yes. you know? Um, this is not like having a DVD that's scratched or something. This is an actual physical print, you know? That's right. Um, anyway, where are we off to, David? Oh, you know what? The other thing that uh, we were talking about in terms of uh, film experience, I'm trying to jump my brain here. What were we saying, David? Oh, one of the things David and I were also talking about in terms of projectionists and and woes they must have had with the film was, can you imagine being a projectionist and that film starts playing and the audience is sitting in the dark for two and a half minutes pre the even the MGM title card. There must have been in every showing people yelling at the projectionist. What you're saying, Troy, is they had an overture, which is almost never yeah. done. Uh, the last theatrical motion picture that had an overture was 11 years later. It was Star Trek, the motion picture had an overture. Now, and as far as I recall, most films that have overtures actually put up a title too that say overture, right? Overture, yeah. cue the light, so I can, this is it, yeah. the night of night. Yeah, they do that. But uh, again, that's you know pure Kubrick genius yes. that he immediately has the audience on edge and is saying, this is unlike anything else you're ever going to see. And the film also had... Uh, yeah. very rare, an intermission in yeah. its original theatrical run, too. And again, as we were saying, a ballsy move by Kubrick in a way. Yeah, it because- is ballsy, but you know what? It also, I think, because it comes right after the scene in the pod bay where Hal observes Dave and Frank thinking that they're speaking clandestinely, but Hal reads their lips. Mm-hmm. And there, Kubrick gave a chance for his audience for the dimwits in the audience who didn't get that, to have it explained to them what had happened to this point in the film. And then when it comes back, it's just that roller coaster ride right into the cosmic Hilton at the end of the film and the star child. Yeah, and and the advantage of that intermission for a longer film is that you can take a break, you can hit the washroom, grab something from the concession, also for a drive-in. The zero-gravity toilet where it takes you the whole intermission just to read the instructions. Yeah. Now, I'm glad that we're doing a two part episode because we're running because it takes a bit of time to actually go through all the Dreamcast that what we're going to do. And then we'll leave more of these questions for the second part. We'll have more time on the second part. So what I'm going to do, if that's and, okay, and, and go and ahead. Just, and just saying quickly, Davey, it's also kind of meta of us because now we get to have our intermission. 
Oh, and there's the thing right on time. So, guys, we would like to get into the feature that we tend to do, uh, which is called Dreamcasting. Dreamcasting. Yeah. Dreamcasting, baby. All right, Dreamcasting. If it's okay, David, and I will start, and all three of us will give our responses for each role. We are first tackling the idea of casting the leads for 2001 A Space Odyssey with the possible, uh, oh, sorry, with we're doing 2001 with the best possible actors and the actresses who have ever lived. Uh, this is our Dreamcast. Um, in part two, later, we're going to get into our Schrodinger's cast, which is uh, can be as unusual as you like. Uh, that's our outside-of-the-box casting. All right, so Troy, if you want to go over the original roles and the actors that played them, and then we will start doing ours, uh, so go right ahead. All right, so our actors in 2001, we had Cure Delay playing Dr. David Bowman. We had Gary Lockwood as Frank Poole, William Sylvester. Uh, was Dr. Haywood Floyd. Leonard Rossiter was Dr. Andre Smyslov. Um, Daniel Richter was Moonwatcher, the chief man-ape. And the voice of Hell 9000 was uh, played by Douglas Rain. We're also going to um, cast the monolith and the star child. And I really wanted to find somebody from uh, Shakespeare's Midsummer Night because in, in that play, somebody plays a wall and, and they actually say, you know, I don't think it was bottom, but they, they actually announced that I am playing the wall. And uh, I think that would be sort of wonderful if we have some uh, really uh, creative things for our monolith. Are we ready to go, David? Are we ready yeah, to yeah. Go so what this? we're going to do is just to get it through, we're going to do two at a time. We're pairing them off. So the first ones will be uh, the first ones that we're looking at is Dave, uh, David Bowman and Frank Poole, the two um, astronauts. So, Troy, if you want to provide yours, then we'll and then I'll do mine and then we'll keep going. OK, so uh, first up, we had. Um, uh, Dave Bowman, and immediately I thought of Jack Nicholson because I wanted to. I'm one of those guys, yes, who always had a bit of a problem with Nicholson in The Shining. So I thought maybe maybe Keir Delay could play Jack Torrance in The Shining, and it would be a more tempered uh, performance. And we could bring Jack Nicholson into uh, the role of Doctor Bowman and give it a little bit more flair. Uh, and then uh, Frank Poole. I seem to want to have. Idris Elba in almost every second dream casting we do. Um, and I think it would also be nice to give it a little more contemporary feel. Um, so that I guess Idris Elba is my Frank pool. So David, how about you? For my dream cast, I'm just looking at for the eight characters in all black cast, sort of similar to what the Wiz was for the Wizard of Oz. So what I did was, and I was sort of uh, interested in doing this just because Sidney Poitier is one of my favorite actors. I love him in The Heat of the Night and To Serve with Love and, and many other films, even Sneakers, that... I thought I've got to have Sidney Poitier in this. So Sidney Poitier for me is Dr. David Bowman uh, when uh, Poitier was in, in the heat of the night around age 40. And I picked uh, Denzel Washington to be uh, Dr. Frank Poole. Uh, basically, the, the, the when the Denzel Washington was doing the Mighty Quinn back in 89, he was around 35. So I think that would be perfect ages for them. Uh, Mark, uh, how about your choices? Well, before I even begin, I want to say that it, this was really, really hard assignment because I absolutely love the original cast. And it, it, it I, I would just say, yeah, pick the original cast and go with it. But that's not our brief today. So I'm, I, I wanted to pick two people that I thought would work well together that would make us think that they, they could function um, there. And they, I didn't want super big stars in these. I want, you know, people who were stars, but weren't superstars and uh, really affected by the blue eyes of Henry Cavill. I picked him as Dr. David Bowman and then his uh, his uh, associate, Dr. Frank Poole, would be played by Chris Pine. And both of them, to me, have kind of that. Uh, yeah, we're doing this. We're the you know, we're we're going to be able to explore and, and go into uh, the unknown and I think the audience would buy that. 
Uh, thanks a lot. And um, Rob, what you got for your, uh, I've already you know, entered them into the, go ahead. Thanks, Dave. You know, 2001 was an incredibly prescient film in so many ways, but it has an absolutely gigantic blind spot on Kubrick's part. Uh, and I guess, you know, whoever the casting director was, because every single person in the film is white. There's not a person of color, uh, not an African, not an Asian in the entire film. And all of the principal roles, with the exception of a Soviet woman, uh, are male, right? Uh, and uh, it's just an enormous blind spot from the same director who put James Earl Jones in the cast of Dr. Strangelove in 1963, seemed to have, and Star Trek, remember, had been on for two years before uh, 2001 came out. It's astonishing to me that the entire cast is white. So my Dave Bowman would be at any number of, of it, it's got to be an understated actor. But you know those limpid eyes that uh, Kier Dulay has? Well, so does David hope I'm saying it right, Jala or Jayla, who is a co-star this season and last season on Star Trek Discovery. He plays Book, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green's boyfriend uh, on Star Trek Discovery, the captain's boyfriend, and is absolutely terrific and has that understated uh, appearance and the same kind of eyes that Bowman had uh, that you could see on the Star Child. And for the female, for Frank Poole, I figure it's, it's, uh, Frankie is short for, uh, Francis, uh, you know, a female first name here. And Sandra Bullock, uh, who had good experience playing an astronaut and acquitted herself very well doing so in gravity. Get a major female character out there. Get somebody of color out there. Make the film believable for 1968, yet alone believable for 2001 or 2022 in that regard. Uh, thanks yeah, a lot. Excellent. I, Go ahead. I, I want to I say something about all four of the picks that, that Rob and I did. It's interesting, too, that we kind of leaned into, you have to like these people. These are all four very likable, very relatable uh, characters. And, and I think that's what's needed for those two astronauts. Yeah, I, I actually toyed around with having Sandra Bullock in there, too, because of Gravity, um, which is a film that I love and I uh, can watch that anytime. Yeah. Can you imagine this film? Because 68 also had prisoners, had, I keep calling it Prisoners of the Apes, Planet of the Apes. And those astronauts were not the most lovable, nice astronauts. So imagine if, if those astronauts were the ones in Planet of the Apes, a very different film. But Taylor's crew had an African-American astronaut in the person of Dodge and a female astronaut in the person of Marianne Stewart. So again, what the hell is going on in Kubrick's mind? He simply had incredible blinders in this particular area. Absolutely. Uh, let's go on to the second set. We paired these all off just so we can get through it quicker. So what we combined is the uh, two doctors, Dr. Haywood Floyd and Dr. Andre Smithsloff. They had a famous scene on the, I guess, the space station or whatever, where he keeps, where Smithsloff keeps asking about what's going on on the moon. So, um, Troy, do you want to give us your um, cast for that? Sure. Well, I was sort of thinking along the same lines as uh, Robert in terms of shaking things up with a little more diversity. So uh, with Dr. Haywood Floyd, I actually was thinking Glenn Close and uh, Dr. Andre uh, Smyslov. I went with Helen Mirren, who actually played a Russian in uh, 2010, sorry, uh, when that film was made. Um, so yeah, and hopefully in episode two, we'll get a, a chance, even though this is about 2001, I would love to just talk for a few minutes about 2010, um, uh, in the second, uh, part, my choices for Haywood Floyd was James Earl Jones, roughly from field of dreams era, 1989, where he's around 58 years old, I think would fit perfectly with Dr. Haywood Floyd character. And for Smyslov, I picked Paul Robeson, uh, from showboat. He was around 38. So I think that would have been perfect. And, and their standout actors, uh, Mark. What do you have? Well, Dr. Haywood Floyd to me is America's dad. And to me, that's the Apollo 13 commander uh, level played by wonderfully played by Tom Hanks. So that's why I picked him. And then um, for the Russian doctor, I picked Jared Harris, who was brilliant in a miniseries called Chernobyl. And I think could pull off that very interesting, could be a diplomat, could be a spy, 
we can't really read him. We don't know what he's thinking. And I, so that's why I picked him. I just wanted to throw in quickly, David, that um, for years, I thought that the actor who played Dr. Haywood Floyd was John Mahoney, who played Fraser Crane's father. Uh, for years, I just thought that was the same actor. Um, and it wasn't until a few years ago, when I guess when uh, John Mahoney passed away, that that it was not him. Yes, William Sylvester, who never had a major career, and this kind of segues into uh, my choices. Um, William Sylvester played the part. He had a small a role in a almost completely forgotten science fiction TV series called Gemini Man, um, but really didn't have a lot of work. He guest starred a couple of times on Six Million Dollar Man. He was a character actor, perfectly adequate character actor, but nothing more. And uh, when uh, the sequel to 2001 was made, and uh, uh, Troy already alluded to the fact that Helen Mirren was in it, I, uh, the director uh, really felt that they couldn't let, William Sylvester couldn't open a film, couldn't carry a film. And so he cast Roy Scheider, uh, best known, of course, for his portrayal in Jaws and as the star of the TV series Sequest DSV. But uh, Roy Scheider played the part in 2010 and brought a humanity and a depth a, a, a nuance to the role that just I sad to say I don't think William Sylvester was capable of. So my dream cast was, uh, you know, exactly what they went with in uh, in 2010, which would be Roy Scheider. And uh, for Doctor Smyslov, you know, we talked today a great deal about having actors portray, uh, portray parts that are not their own ethnicity or their own gender orientation. And so I just plugged in a Russian actor. There are not many that I could think of, unfortunately. Uh, Eddie, of course, is deceased now, but uh, and best known as a ballet dancer, but Alexander Gudinov, who was wonderful in the film Witness, starring another major science fiction actor, Harrison Ford, in a non-SF role. So Roy Scheider and Alexander Gudinov are my picks for Floyd. And it's Smyslov, Alexander uh, sorry, Dr. Andrei Smyslov. He says his own name in the film. It's, in the original, it's Leonard Rossiter, best known as a comedian for the fall and rise of uh, Reginald Parrot, his comedy series. Okay, and let's go on to, uh, thanks a lot, Rob. And let's go on to our third set, which we're combining. Uh, the, we're looking at Moonwatch, which is the Chief Man-Ape, and also the HAL 9000. So we're having a bit of fun with this, because these aren't your sort of your standard uh, characters from the film. So, Troy, what do you have for your choices for these uh, characters? Okay, I had to do a little playoff. First of all, I did like the idea of Tom Hanks um, voicing. Uh, he was one of my three. Uh, the other one was sort of the, the otter notion to have Stephen Hawking's vocoder voice, um, which I thought it should sound a little bit, you know, smoother than that. And then I was just I went with Scarlett Johansson, who uh, did the voice in, is the film called She or Her? Her. Her. Yeah, Her. Um, and I, I quite like that film. And I thought, let's go with that again. So I went with Scarlett Johansson as the voice of Hal. And as Moon Watcher, this is not really, uh, you know, this is a pretty obvious choice. I went with Andy Serkis. Who, who plays the apes in the CGI versions of uh, Planet of the Apes films that are out currently. Yeah. It's a perfect choice. Uh, I went uh, with uh, Radon Chong from, uh, uh, notably from Quest for Fire, uh, around 1981, where she was around age 20. And for Hal 9000, I picked Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's known for many things, but also as uh, from a Cosmos, a space time journey that started in 2014. That that version uh, that they did, it was around 56 at that that time, and I think he would be great for the voice of Hal. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, my choices are, uh, you know, nobody plays an ape in my view. This guy's even better than Andy Serkis. It's Roddy McDowell, the mm -hmm. original Caesar, the original Cornelius Galen yep. from the planet of the apes TV series. Uh, just an absolutely charming actor. That said, Dan Richter is so integral to the Planet of the Apes Moonwatcher sequence to the Dawn of Man. He choreographed, he didn't just star, he choreographed the whole thing 
uh, all the movements of all the actors. I'd hate to see him replaced, but if you have to replace some Roddy McDowell for Hal 9000, Nina Rowley is the voice actress who does the voice of Amazon's uh, personal assistant uh, that has the same name as David's lovely wife, my sister-in-law, Alexa, uh, which mine just turned on here. But Nina Rowley would be perfect as Hal 9000. I have to say, Rob, uh, I considered Roddy McDowell for Moonwatcher. And then after having read uh, one of the uh, uh, the nonfiction books about um, uh, the making of 2001, uh, I thought I, I do not want to subject Roddy McDowell at any point in his life to to what those actors had to go through. Uh, you know, I heard about like, you know, the, the knee injuries and yes. whatnot for staying down and breathing. They couldn't breathe. They were basically you know, suffocating with the mask, which are incredible looking, but I can't imagine wearing those and having to be that physical, but yeah, Roddy McDowell would be superb. I, I have to say that my moon watcher is Doug Jones, who I think is one of the great creature actors of our time, really superb. Uh, he also could choreograph. He, also understands how to do this kind of uh, creature. Uh, I've never seen him do an ape, so that would be interesting as well. And for Hal 9000, to me, the key is tone, getting the tone right. And I thought, Helen Murren, there's something very interesting about that voice because it could be very soothing. It could be uh, very gentle. But when the turn happens, sorry, spoilers, um, I think she (laughs) would be perfect. So she really, to me, um, that's my pick. And, uh, and I think it, 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 again, as we keep saying, it's so hard to go into this cast and, and not pick Douglas Reigns to not pick Richter. You know, it's very hard to make any of these choices because they were so brilliantly cast and did such a great job in the original. Excellent choice. Okay, and we've got to um, finish up with the final set. And this we were just having a bit of fun here because we thought, why not have someone play the monolith and the star child? So, um, Troy, what do you have for your your um, monolith and star child? Well, I bailed out of my idea of going with an actual actor um, for the monolith. And so I went with an Ikea Hemnis bookcase. If you, you can look that up online, it's basically the same scale, like, or dimensions, you know, and, um, it's black as well. So there you go. And your star child. My star child is Clint Howard, who I seem to have in every third, uh, one of these. Um, and of course, I was thinking of his role uh, in Star Trek. And so we would just get him a little younger, a little younger than that, like 10 years younger. <laughs> and go with Clint Howard as uh, a fetus. Yeah, I think you you drank a bit, of, a bit of the Tranya there to have that <laughs> as a choice. But anyway, so I picked uh, for the mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Oh, keep that in, Troy. Keep that in. Um, so I picked uh, Morgan Freeman uh, when he was in Unforgiven. Uh, he was around 55. I think he was just perfect for the monolith because he can act and he can do anything. Um, yeah. And Star Child, I picked, uh, I'm not sure Zendaya or Zendaya, but uh, she was in Dune and a number of other things. She's an upcoming sort of actress that's making a name for herself and is doing very well. I, th- I loved her in the Dune film in 2021. So those uh, are my choices for those two. And Zendaya Mandaya is a great police album. You know, for the monolith, I'm going to go for the most obvious choice, I think, uh, to certain people of a certain age. Marcel Marceau, who is the famous mime artist, the famous French mime artist. And uh, I, for Star Child, that was a bit tricky for me. <laughs> I picked, I picked uh, David Bowie, yeah. uh, mostly because, well, Star Child, why not? Yeah. I like uh, Troy's suggestion of Clint Howard uh, playing the star child. This is amniotic fluid. (laughs) I hope you relish it as much as I. But my choice was going with the monolith has to be played by the rock. (laughs) There you go. Dwayne Johnson, the rock. There you go. And as for the star child, doesn't he look like a big baby? Jonah Hill, the comedic (laughs) actor Jonah Hill. Those are my choices. Yeah. Oh, uh, man, I was... want to see all of these films. 
this was so much fun, but we are running out of time because we have to record our, our second part as well. So um, Mark and Rob, thank you so much for being our guests for the first part and looking forward to the second part. All righty. Remember to catch us on all of our uh, socials out there. Um, you, you, our website is two old farts, two OF. <laughs> our website is two numeric two OF.ca. You can find us on Twitter at two numeric two old farts sci fi, Facebook, or two old farts talk sci fi. Please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Sing about it in the streets. I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. So I just what I have there is the film. The pizza delivery man has just <laughs> arrived, and the woman has no money to pay him. <laughs> oh, what's she gonna do? Oh no! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. The, the, <laughs> if only Kubrick had made that film. End of part one. Intermission.